0: Welcome to the Corona of Thorns podcast. I'm Father Peter Swans, and today is Wednesday of the 23rd week in Ordinary Time. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And with your spirit. O God, by whom we are redeemed and receive adoption, look graciously upon your beloved sons and daughters, that those who believe in Christ may receive true freedom and an everlasting inheritance. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, for ever and ever.
2: Amen. A reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. About remaining celibate. I have no directions from the Lord, but give my own opinion as one who, by the Lord's mercy, has stayed faithful. Well, then, I believe that in these present times of stress, this is right that it is good for a man to stay as he is. If you are tied to a wife, do not look for freedom. If you are free of a wife, then do not look for one. But if you marry, it is no sin, and it is not a sin for a young girl to get married. They will have their troubles, though, in their married life, and I should like to spare you that. Brothers, this is what I mean. Our time is growing short. Those who have wives should live as though they had none, and those who mourn should live as though they had nothing to mourn for. Those who are enjoying life should live as though there was nothing to laugh about. Those whose life is buying things should live as though they had nothing of their own. And those who have to deal with the world should not become engrossed in it. I say this because the world as we know it is passing away. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Listen to me, daughter. See and bend your ear. Listen to me, daughter. See and bend your ear. Listen, O daughter, give ear to my words. Forget your own people and your father's house. So will the king desire your beauty. He is your lord. Pay homage to him. Listen to me, daughter. See and bend your ear. The daughter of the king is clothed with splendor. Her robes embroidered with pearls set in gold. She is led to the king with her maiden companions. Listen to me, daughter. See and bend your ear. They are escorted amid gladness and joy. They pass within the palace of the king. Sons shall be yours in place of your fathers. You will make them princes over all the earth. Listen to me, daughter. See and bend your ear. Alleluia, alleluia. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward will be great in heaven.
0: Alleluia. The Lord be with you.
1: And with your spirit.
0: A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke.
1: Glory to you, O Lord.
0: Fixing his eyes on his disciples, Jesus said, How happy are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Happy you who are hungry now, you shall be satisfied. Happy you who weep now, you shall laugh. Happy are you when people hate you, drive you out, abuse you, denounce your name as criminal on account of the Son of Man, rejoice when that day comes and dance for joy, for then your reward will be great in heaven. This is the way their ancestors treated the prophets. But alas for you who are rich, you are having your consolation now. Alas for you who have your fill now, you shall go hungry. Alas for you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. Alas for you when the world speaks well of you, this is the way their ancestors treated the false prophets. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: Praise to you, Lord Jesus
0: Christ. So St. Paul in the letter to the Corinthians brings up the question about celibacy. But I think rather than get too deeply into what St. Paul says about it, that we'd pull back a little bit and just talk about celibacy in general because I think it's a question that comes up a lot. I'll be honest with you, it's it's one of the things I think that that people are most baffled by I think if you're Catholic and you grow up Catholic it probably doesn't seem quite as weird as it does to the rest of the world but you know the rest of the world thinks we're all a bit bonkers. It's funny when I go to the gym um, you know obviously I'm not going in you know clerical attire um, and you know eventually people sort of find out that I'm a, I'm a Catholic priest and then you know inevitably comes the question it's like so can you get married? and you know when I'm like well no, there's usually sort of this kind of glaze that goes over people's eyes and, and you, can, you can just see what's running through their minds. It's like, "Oh, you're one of those ones." Curiously, they don't seem to have the same kind of reaction to the celibacy of Buddhist monks for for some reason, they're, they're kind of you know a little bit more otherworldly and and um, you know admired for it. But you know I, I suppose you know the recent history of the Catholic clergy probably has a bit to do with that. But you know, it's interesting, even in Catholic circles, I find that the whole issue about priestly celibacy is something that's really, you know, sort of quite poorly understood. I mean, the number of times that someone comes up to me and goes, gee, Father, when are they going to let you get married? Now, I'll give you a hot tip. Don't ever say that to me. It really raises my hackles. For starters, who the heck is they? When are they going to let you get married? Who do you think's holding me back? Like... The Pope's got me shackled and, you know, if it weren't for the Pope, that I'd I'd go off and find myself a wife? If the bishop changed the rules and finally I could go off and be happy? What do people imagine the, the priest has done in, in taking on the promise of celibacy when he got ordained? You know, when religious take their vows, is this something that they do with sorrow, with sadness? It's a promise that they enter into, in, in freedom. And what annoys me when people say, you know, when are they going to let you get married? Is that it presumes that I wasn't free in taking that promise of celibacy. That in fact, this was something that was taken away from me. And it's like, well, when are they going to finally give it back to you? It's like, no, no, this is something that I freely gave myself. This is a sacrifice that I made. This is a gift that I gave to God. Now here's the important thing, right? The only way that celibacy is actually a gift that you give to God is if you prize it. If marriage and family life is something that, you know, you really hold as as beautiful and as desirable, but then give it up for the sake of God. It's only then that it becomes a gift. If 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 it's not worth anything to you, then the celibacy that you live is not going to be a gift at all. You can only sacrifice something that's good and that you desire. It kind of makes me smile a little bit because, you know, when you stop and think about it, when a couple gets married, in saying yes to each other, they say an implicit no to every other person in the world. In pledging their faithfulness, they say, you know what, I'm for you and you're for me. Now, we don't say to a married couple, gee, when are they going to let you marry someone else? It's like, well, no, it's not that something external is holding me back from marrying someone else. I've made this choice freely, and I live out that choice. So when people say to me, you know, oh, when are they going to let you get married? What I hear in my head is, when are they going to let you be unfaithful to your promise? Because it's so unfair that that you have to keep your promise. It's so unreasonable that... you what you entered into freely is something that you should remain faithful to, as if I were somehow locked in a prison and that the key was held by someone else. It bugs me a little bit because implicitly what people are saying is that the sacrifice that you've made, I think, actually has no value. Okay, fine. that's all right. I, I don't expect people to, you know, understand very clearly the the, the decision that I entered into in taking on a celibate life. So maybe I've got to tell you. Maybe that's the problem, that we actually haven't spoken about the positive meaning behind priestly celibacy and the reason why religious take the vows of poverty, obedience and chastity. I think we have something of the practical understanding behind celibacy. It's like, okay, um, it makes it easier to move priests from parish to parish, um, and it also means that, you know, A priest is going to be more available to his parishioners because he doesn't have the obligations of uh, a wife and family. The financial burden of a whole family doesn't fall on a parish. I mean, you know, it's hard enough supporting a priest from the second collection, let alone his wife and kids who haven't promised to live a life of poverty, let's face it. I think we can easily wrap our heads around, you know, those kind of practical implications. However, they're all secondary What's it for? What's its positive meaning? Well, firstly, simply, we're living in the imitation of Jesus, who was unmarried, who dedicated his whole life to his mission, who poured out his whole life upon the cross. The second aspect, though, is what Paul's kind of referring to in the reading today, that it's worth ordering everything in your life toward God. Now, obviously, even Paul acknowledges not everyone's called to a life of celibacy. I mean, you know, thank God, otherwise this would be the last generation, right? But for those who are, they become a sign. They become a sign that even the most precious and important things in this world come from God, and it's worth sacrificing even the most precious things in this world to obtain God. And so celibates kind of, with the witness of their lives, are sort of walking around with their hand pointed toward God. Yeah, as great as everything is, there's something still more. There's something still greater. There's something more to hope for. Now, I'll be honest with you, I think the world needs that now more than ever. And yet it seems to be rejected now more than ever. So that's number two, that celibates and religious... They offer an evangelical witness to the world by means of their chastity, of their celibacy. Okay, the homily is getting a little bit long, but I still want to give you a number three because this is a personal one. The promise of celibacy isn't a one and done kind of thing. You know, when you get ordained a deacon, you make your promise, and then you don't really have to think about it anymore because, you know, you've signed your oath and you're done. Nah, that's not how it works. Celibacy is something that calls for a constant gift. Um, and there are times when it's really challenging. you know there are times when, you know the pain of the sacrifice weighs more heavily on you than at other times. Um, and what it calls for then is a renewal of the promise, a kind of refocusing of like, what this is really about, what am I really seeking? What am I giving this up for? And in this regard. It becomes a great renewal in personal faith. Now, a couple of months ago, um, Brother Sebastian Condon, who's a a Dominican brother, wrote um, a great little article on on the vow of chastity um, in The Catholic Leader, Um, and I want to quote to you uh, a a little section from it, um, because I think he explains it far better than I can. This is what he says. So what happens when you fall in love with someone when you've already sworn vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience? What happens when you love a person and they love you, and your mind is daily filled with the future life you could lead if you just walked out that door? That's when celibacy becomes interesting. The friar who taught us classes on the Evangelical Councils on Poverty, Obedience and Chastity during our novitiate in Hong Kong often repeated what turns out to be a very wise line. He said, Brothers, you may think poverty is going to be your biggest problem in religious life. You may think it will be obedience, or chastity, or common life with the brethren. He shakes his head slowly with closed eyes. It will be faith, he said. And he was right. When you're confronted with the dazzling possibility, not of material fortune, or fame, or glory, but of tangible, affective love, that's when religious life becomes interesting. That's when you begin to really ask yourself, do I believe all this? Exactly. I think you can see from this that, you know, celibacy, it's not a one-and-done thing. But in the personal life of a priest or religious, the challenge of giving that gift daily, over and over again, even in the face of greater difficulties, is a burden that helps also strengthen faith. You're confronted with that question, do I believe all this and is this sacrifice really worth it? And that's when we encounter Christ once more. And in struggling for faith, we're made stronger in faith. I don't know. When people say to me, you know, when are they going to let you get married? Um, maybe they're trying to be nice. You know, maybe they're trying to spare me that struggle. But maybe sparing me that struggle will also take away from me that opportunity for greater faith. So what's going to happen in the church more broadly regarding the requirement for priestly celibacy? I don't know. Um... But what I do know is that, for me, I've made my promise, and I'd humbly ask you to pray for me and for all those who live a consecrated chastity, that we may do so joyfully, firstly in imitation of Christ, and that it may bear fruit in the church by our evangelical witness, um, and that it may bear fruit in our own personal lives by being a constant strengthening of our faith. Health of the sick. At the foot of the cross, you participated in Jesus' pain with steadfast faith. You, salvation of the Roman people, know what we need. We are certain that you will provide, so that as you did in Cana of Galilee, joy and feasting might return after this moment of trial. Help us, Mother of Divine Love, to conform ourselves to the Father's will,